Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer. I'm Ben Klemmer. I'm Steven Stahoski. And I'm Larissa Whitaker. And we're finally all here. In season three, the four hosts will live together in harmony. <laughs> harmony? Are you sure about that? <laughs> That's then followed by the Fire Nation attacking. Oh, Which one of us is the Fire Nation? Huh? Oh, we we were talking about Hogwarts houses. We never we actually did do went through houses. and did. We did, but we never did nations, which would also be interesting if we actually have all four represented with the Ooh. four of us. I feel like that would be kind of unlikely. The test I took said I was water tribe. I think. Okay. I've not taken a test. All right, so we'll have to we'll, we'll have cover to that cover that some other time. Oh gosh, Fire Nation. It's okay. Now, one thing I know we wanted to cover right out of the gate here because all four of us are on the mics and. If this is perhaps the first episode of our podcast you're listening to, then you've missed uh, the fact that we have two hosts joining us starting this episode officially, though we made announcements the last couple. Uh, We have Larissa and Steven on board in the hosting role, along with Caleb and I. And we wanted to start by talking about kind of what led you guys here. Steven, we'll start with you because you go back a little further with us in the podcast because your voice was on the first season for a spotlight. Yeah. And there's been some collaboration from there that I would love to hear your side of. Yeah, so I've been in the studio for about 90% of the second season, and I was on the mics for three episodes in the second season, and then the spotlight in the first. I think I was... Is that it? That sounds about so. right. Plus, you have Four also written a lot the, for the, the Storytime Breakdown blog, too. Yeah, and I did, I've did. i done blogs, and so I kind of came on board... At the beginning is, well, what did you write? You, you listed me as a writer, editor. Producer, because producer. you were wearing a lot of hats, yeah, as we all so kind I, of do, because we're a small team. Yeah, so oh, I, I came on yeah. to do that, and, and it's not the first time you and I have collaborated on a project before. As we went through the seasons, there just became more and more episodes that I wanted to contribute to more and more beyond just writing and helping with editing and helping with the production. And then I was also coordinating our crossover episodes with Dave's Vault, and I was coordinating a couple of other things, and then I was doing a ton of writing for the blog. And it just kind of made sense. By the end of the second season, we were all like, yeah, let's just let's just go ahead and put him on a mic so he can waste all of our time um, with his long-winded explanations of everything. So that's the short version. I'm sure I could give a longer version if you wanted to. I think that version worked out just fine. Because <laughs> you and I have known each other for 11 years yeah. and, it, and have collaborated on a bunch of different things in the past. This made all the sense in the world and then we three he said pointing to larissa caleb and myself go back to time at saint francis yes and then post-college i know you and i overlapped with creative mornings uh, the chapter uh, here in fort wayne it's again it's one of those things where the podcast is a result of the pop culture conversations you're having anyway it was it's always been fun to have those conversations with you and then things kind of grew from there Yeah, I think that covers it. I really enjoy the opportunity to be able to engage with people and talk about the stories that have been so influential in our individual and collective experiences. And I'm excited to see that happen in this space, too. I really enjoyed contributing to the blog as well. I wrote about Wonder Woman and about Craig Ferguson. And I'd like to make a quick side note and acknowledge that Seth Meyers' late night show energy is moving closer and closer to that of Craig Ferguson's. It's getting stranger and I'm very much enjoying it. And I look forward to the opportunity to discuss all kinds of different pop culture with you guys throughout this season. Another total side note, my favorite Craig Ferguson is from How to Train Your Dragon. To be quite honest, he's delightful in that. That is a great so much fun, and that was going to come up anyway because him voicing a character of that style is also the inspiration for Larissa's D and D character. But we will talk about D and D in maybe about a half hour or so. We'll see when we socks, but only the left ones. (laughs) (laughs) That's too good. 
the way we structure, and this is where I'm excited that we are all here in this space because the community update episode last year was weird. I mean, we it was once again a very cold day in January, and it was I think it was the only episode we've done where you and I, Caleb, were not in the same space. We had handheld recorder, one spot, microphone, and another over the phone talking about RPGs and other things that we wanted to give an update on, and we do want to include that update. Uh, for this episode, because we dropped 12 episodes in 2021, starting with that previous community update. Eight were recorded in John Dawkins' studio space, which is where we are today. And again, it is just good to be back all together and be able to look back at, even as hectic as 2021 was, a wonderful second season. And there's some people we definitely need to thank. Oh, yeah. Before we get to thanking the people on the spotlights, in season two alone, we had nine guests total, including some members of our own team. We want to extend a thank you to Stephen, Lucas, Zephyr, Austin, Albert, Jane, Dawn, Colette, and Carolyn. We enjoyed having you guys so much. The full-length conversations covered a range of topics, and they were all so much fun to do. And then a special thank you for everybody who joined us on the Spotlight section. Uh, those thank yous go out to Lucas, Larissa, Rob, Father Dan, Father Stephen, Casey, Jacob, John, Ethan, Alex, Brian, Ella, Kibway, and Jeremy. Storytelling Breakdown has listeners in 35 countries and counting. If you know any researchers working in Antarctica, please share the podcast with them. We'll have listeners on every continent at that point. I always get excited. I find that so interesting. Because but it is interesting. Ben's the analytical guy, so he'll text me. He'll be like, we got a new listener in this country. So wherever you are listening, thank you so much. Uh, we would love to hear from you, and we'll include uh, contact information later in the episode, SB socials and our email address and all that fun stuff. But let's uh, dive into... Uh, a couple things we wanted to hit on today, topic-wise for this episode. When we did our last community update episode, the primary topic was RPGs, because Caleb, you and I had, we knew that we both played a lot of those, and we hadn't spent a lot of time on it on the podcast yet. That has changed, and we'll yes. continue to get another chapter <laughs> added in today, I suspect. For our conversation today, we do want to talk a little bit about just, again, some of the topics and some of the conversations from Season 2 that we really liked, that we were really excited to be a part of, and then... The prompt that we'll get to after that will just be our year in pop culture. We'll each kind of share what pop culture experiences came up for us that we maybe did or didn't talk about on the podcast, and we'll have the opportunity to do so. Uh, but Caleb, do you want to lead off for topics from season two that you yeah, immensely enjoyed? My personal favorite episode we did. Well, Ben's going to talk about my favorite episode that we did, um, but I'll let him. And we both can. I'll obviously. let him carry that torch, but I loved the Fake Doctors Real Dramedies episode. That was so much fun. Mm -hmm. But I think the most fun recording episode was the meeting of the five families, because that was just Ben, me, and Steven sitting in Ben's office, having a couple glasses of whiskey, just talking about one of our favorite movie genres of all time. Oh, it was oh, great. The mobster movie. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to record. Of course, we had to provide had to provide drinks yeah. for that experience it just it just fit and then trying to hammer that out like trying to narrow the field oh, man, to yeah. if you can only pick five best film five. best it character was, best scene. it was hard it was hard oh, my and there was a lot of research that went into it i think oh, yeah. we all viewed at least two to three multiple hours movies right i mean each of those movies they're not short no. <laughs> what was the runtime on what was it uh once upon a time in america uh, like, the director's edition is like three plus hours. Yeah. And I uh, discovered, I think I did reference this on that episode, uh, some videos from Eyebrow Cinema that kind of talked about, and and we did bring this up on the episode, that that was a movie that definitely kind of deconstructed the gangster genre and mm -hmm. then kind of led to a lot of what we've seen in Prestige Television, which we then talked about on the following episode with Carolyn uh, for Boardwalk Blinders. 
that conversation and just so many things we got to cover. I'm just glad it led to my first viewing of Donnie Brasco. That's an amazing yeah. movie. God, man, I can't believe I almost didn't include that because it is such a great movie. Well, I'm a big like top 10 list nerd. Like, I love watching creators and hearing, oh, these are like their top 10 movies or top 10 whatever. So doing a top five was fun for me. We'll, we'll get a top 10 in a little bit because that's going to be part of my year in, in media. So don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll still hit that even on this episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and the stuff is hard to rank. And then it's also hard to narrow the field when you have things that have such a wide volume of content to pull oh, from, yeah. which is what you and I collided with when we did Fake Doctors, Real Dramedies, because you take the eight seasons... You take the eight good seasons of Scrubs. I was going to say there were nine, right? <laughs> yeah. You take the 11-year run of MASH and then try to narrow that and say, hey, watch these episodes and we'll talk. And, oh, my word, that was fun. Like, oh, just yeah. to what extent it's like, oh, my sense of humor and the writing on MASH get along so well. And then getting to introduce someone to Scrubs for the first time. Well, I, I still joy. need to steal back your DVD collection and watch the entirety of the show. It's on Amazon. Never mind. I don't need your DVD collection. I have the power <laughs> myself. Georgia and I have been watching uh, Scrubs recently. And and again, yes, it is amazing to to what extent Scrubs and Chuck. Mm-hmm. Chuck influenced my, my uh, which we haven't talked about on this show before, but Chuck uh, influenced my music. My wife and I, we rewatched Chuck recently. And she goes, this is where your music came from. She just flat out looks at me and says, this is where your choice of music came from. And I went, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's one of those, yeah, I I mean, definitely did that to a certain extent with with Scrubs because there are some things that pop up in there that just stick with you. Uh, and especially, I mean, just all the love in the world uh, to one of the primary cast members uh, who's no longer with us, uh, Sam Lloyd, and the fact that he uh, played Ted and his band as a running gag throughout the entire show, and they also just do some amazing performances in there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So, yes, watch the whole thing. Absolutely worth your time. And I was thinking of, I think it's the Cox Rants, and I'm trying to remember which one, if it's in the musical episode or another episode, where he just lists a bunch of girls' names one after the other, but that was what popped into my head when you were reading Spotlights (laughs) like five minutes ago. (laughs) Cox is my favorite character. Oh, of course. That shouldn't surprise anybody. And he's the Hawkeye analog, which we definitely discovered as we did the the comparison between the two shows. MASH is on Hulu, in case any of you guys wanted to watch it. MASH is on Hulu. MASH is on Hulu. I think my favorite episode of the season was probably Star Wars, probably Rogue Producers. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just a really cool experience to relive the process of how we did that first season of our tabletop Star with the Wars. fake core campaign yeah. with the fake core campaign. That was the highlight of this past season for me. And, uh, and then getting to hit a spotlight with Casey and have him kind of talk about the same thing, but from the other side of the chair of the table, as it were, where players well, experience. That's why that was a fun episode for me to listen to since I wasn't really involved with it at all. And neither was I involved with the actual playing of the Star Wars campaign, but I, you know, I heard all the stories from it. Like Ben would text me to be like, "Oh, this is what went down," or I have this. He'd show me like behind the scenes. Oh, I have oh, these yeah. things here was planned the plan for the next here, session. Here was the plan, and here's and what here's actually how happened. It didn't yes. happen. Yeah, um, the plan never survives contact with the player intact. What we will discover, I think, as we do want to talk about other RPG stuff, is even in just a year, less than a year since we recorded that, the way you and I our focusing our energies and RPGs has changed so much. Very. But before we dive into that, Larissa, thoughts and elements of past episodes or topics you want to hit on? 
selfishly, what comes to mind is the opportunity to do the spotlight that I was a part of in season two. I got a lot out of having that experience to really sit down and try to articulate what it was that had stood out to me about a piece of media. And I think that is so well reflected across the Storytelling Breakdown collection. Maybe halfway between now and when we recorded that, because that was, again, I think in the late spring, I believe I sent you a video from Matthew Colville talking about how Black Panther does an amazing job of telling a story within a chaotic society. Hmm. And it's very at home in its, in its chaos. And Matthew Colville is a brilliant uh, game runner and DM and creator of content for RPGs and games, uh, both, I think, in the world of video games and in tabletop RPGs. And he was a, a discovery while... I think after I had gotten my second COVID shot and I was laid up on the couch, I just was queuing things up on YouTube and just listening to them and lying there and hearing Matthew Colville's voice telling me how to be a better DM. Mm. And I think this now kind of takes us into our year in pop culture because we've already hit on some of these (laughs) in terms of things that we have experienced. Best way to do this might be kind of we each go around and talk about something from our year in pop culture. We chime in to the extent that we can or want to. And there's definitely overlap. So there will be things that's like, oh, this person brought this up. I can mark that off my list and we have the conversation. And I think Caleb, seeing as you and I have had a six episode season and an 11 episode season to talk about all of our pop culture things, I think we will let the two of you go first. Do you want to play rock, paper, scissors for it? Sure. <laughs> okay, ready? On shoot? Yeah. Okay. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Okay, you go first. Larissa's ring off. So my first one, I would like to note before I dive in, I feel like I have a shelf in my brain where I put whatever information I have about my current fascination in pop culture. And then when that fascination is over, I knock everything off the shelf, but a couple stray papers are still there. And so I forget a lot of what I had watched or what I learned about it, even though I would have spent weeks thinking about something. And in trying to answer this question, I remembered that for about the first Three or four weeks of 2021, I was completely fixated on The King of Staten Island, which is a film starring Pete Davidson that's a kind of sort of autobiography of parts of his life, for those who may not have seen it. From there, I went to focus on Judd Apatow's career. I didn't watch anything else that he had made, but I listened and listened and listened to different podcast interviews on how he wrote. And I noticed this theme coming through as I wrote my list about personal vulnerability in storytelling and how storytellers bring that through and some of the risks associated there and how carefully that can or cannot be managed. And I also went and watched and rewatched Pete Davidson's stand-up special, Alive from New York. And there was just something about that film, The King of Staten Island, that I had a deep connection with that I still don't fully understand. But it got to the point where... I was thinking about King of Staten Island so often for so long that I had to look myself in the mirror and say, this ends now. We're not thinking about this anymore. We're going to put it away and we're not, we're not going to rewatch the Pete Davidson special. We're not going to look up any more articles. This is over now. And then I forgot about it until I went to make this list. Well, you were successful then Yeah. stopping. I've seen the Alive from New York special, but I have not seen King of Staten Island. That's on my list, though. Isn't... I have it on DVD if you want to borrow it. I do. <laughs> Isn't Steve Buscemi in that? Yes, yes. Steve Buscemi uh, is in it. Steve yeah. Buscemi. And this is, I'm in the same boat as Caleb. I haven't seen King of Staten Island yet. I feel like so many of those deeply personal, like, if I'm making a movie about me, boom, here it is. And there's always that tension in any major creative project, a film especially, between 
what is the studio willing to invest in? What do they view as having a high likelihood of being commercially successful? And what is the most true to the artist that still is relatable to the extent that an audience can can connect with it? And you try to guess at the best of both worlds. Because you either wind up with something that's so far in left field because it's so deeply personal but doesn't resonate with anybody. Or you wind up with something that is so bland and is moved by committee. But you might have something, you always have something in the middle where, hey, this is my personal story told in a way that an audience is going to vibe with. And it's going to stick in the craw <laughs> until you demand for it to get out. Yeah, and it's fascinating that you bring that up specifically, Ben, because one of the things I remember Judd Apatow mentioning in his writing process as he collaborated with Pete Davidson to write the story was about finding the universal in the specific and how much of that came through in writing and creating that movie. Well, and Pete Davidson has always struck me as a very, he's very authentic. Like, he's always himself in any setting. So you're going to get that, like, genuine storytelling from him, which is, I mean, I think that helps you connect with him and, yeah. like, appreciate his media more. So is there an obvious segue out of that into one of yours, or do we just want to go, I'm going to bring this up and we rock? I mean, <laughs> I don't have a segue. Um <laughs> This past year, the Mass Effect Legendary Edition came out, and Mass Effect has always been one of those things that I have to curb my obsession with on a regular <laughs> basis. So the Legendary Edition came out this past year, and I purchased the Legendary Edition in 2020, the day pre-sale opened. There we go. Um, so Mass Effect, oh, it was, it was just too good. It, for those of you who maybe aren't uh, aware of Mass Effect, it's a Bioware... RPG for you know video game right um, originally released on Xbox 360 um, I think the third game dropped in 2012 so right at the end of the 360's lifespan and right from the get-go I was completely hooked when I found out the legendary edition was coming out I was beyond ecstatic because it was gonna have all of the DLC and it was gonna be remastered to be gorgeous and it didn't let me down and so I I was very very happy when it when it finally hit my hot little hand in early May. And I also, my youngest son was born in early May, so I had a lot of time not sleeping when I wanted to be sleeping that I could then play my game. So uh, that was a big one for for my, my 2021, was getting to relive that trilogy. The, those characters are very, very near and dear to my heart. Um, and I have sunk Who's more your favorite? hours... Who's my favorite character? Yeah, who's your favorite companion? And I, I was going to ask because Chuck already came up. Did the uh, you said obsession, but I'll just say enjoyment of Yvonne Starhovsky start helps. with Mass Effect or with Chuck? You know, actually, it probably started with Chuck because okay. Chuck came out before I got my before I ever did a first playthrough of Mass Effect. But Mass Effect's one of those things. Um, I don't care for her character mm. in Mass Effect. She's intolerable, but that's okay. <laughs> I think my favorite companion is a tie between Garrus and and Rex. Garrus and Rex are uh, probably Garrus really edges out Rex. Um, Those are good, especially choices. if you play if you play male Shepard, who's the main character is always Shepard. But Bioware gave you the choice at the very beginning of the games. You can choose to either be male or female, and it does affect the way the game plays. It's very cool. Hmm. But uh, Garrus and male Shepard have the best bromance of any video game, and I just I just love love playing through that. So I like that it if you play if you play Renegade. So Renegade is if you take like a more evil path and then Paragon is more good in like the actions you take in the world. Yeah. But if you're Renegade and you're friends with Garrus, it's like good cop, bad cop. Yeah. It's a fun dynamic. <laughs> it, oh, they're, they're hilarious. Uh, Rex is one of my favorite characters, but you only really get him as a companion in the first game. 
and then you see him in the second and third game. In the third game, they 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 dropped a really big DLC called the Citadel, where you you did get Rex back for a few missions. But Rex as a character is kind of like Gimli, it, and Rex and Garrus are Gimli to Legolas, where they 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 screw with each other in a very bro way that is just hilarious to listen to. Um, the whole the whole trilogy is just a, a wonderfully written story, but it's also of really original, fleshed out space universe that does a really good, a great job. And we'll probably talk about Mass Effect in this coming season, I hope. But it does a great job of not being Star Wars and not being Star Trek. It is definitely very much its own thing. So getting to relive that was a really, really cool, really, really, really cool experience in this past year. And we haven't gotten too far into the specifics, or at least aren't going to share them here, that uh, my experiencing Mass Effect for the first time is something that we kind of want to do through Storytelling Breakdown. Yeah, We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I want to talk about some of the things that I then got to experience as a result of this podcast, and a couple of them have already come up, like Donnie Brasco and MASH. The third one I had on the list of things that came up because of SB uh, was Bo Burnham inside because I was getting I was seeing it starting to blow up in social media and I was like oh that person really liked it I value their opinions I, I think I think highly of them and if they enjoyed it I probably would too it's like oh there's someone else who's like oh this was amazing you need to watch it and then you texted me and as soon as you were like this is amazing it's like okay well we're watching this together and we're probably doing an episode on it and it came together in less than a week yeah that was our quickest episode turnaround because mm-hmm. oh. that was the week it came out yeah. And then my second viewing of it was your fourth. We recorded that same day and turned around the episode for later that month. Oh my goodness. And just the extent to which I'm tr- I'm not going to remember the quote verbatim, but he won an award for it and some I think it was something like Bo Burnham perfectly captured the experience of pandemic depression. <laughs> and it's so true. It, anything that you have gone through throughout everything that we've experienced with COVID-19, Bo Burnham Inside is going to resonate with you somewhere, if not all over the place. It is just so well done. And then as an artist, as a creative, everything he does with the writing of his music, with the lighting, with the different motifs, with the commentary on the internet across the board, it's so, so good. But at this point, I would just say, go back and listen to our episode, Bo Burnham Breakdown, it was so fun to have that conversation, and I'm due for a rewatch. Yeah, I mean, you could rewatch it, you know, once a month, once a week. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a little much. A little much. Mm. It'd get too real too quickly. It, yeah, you'd, you'd start to turn into Bo Burnham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also don't have a good segue, but uh, a show that stuck out to me a lot this past year, because I, I watched the entirety of it, its two seasons had come out previously, and then the third season just aired, was Succession on HBO, which is a wonderful, dark comedy drama and it's kind of basically the premise is what if the Lannisters were the Trump family in America it follows this family that owns this billion dollar media conglomerate starring Brian Cox as the head of the family the guy who founded it all but he's getting super old and sick and his four kids are like vying for who's going to succeed him to the throne of this company and it's filled with betrayals and backstabs wonderful awkward uncomfortable comedy it's absolutely fantastic i would highly recommend all of you to watch it it's very crazy just on some of parts i'm interested oh my goodness yeah you know what else came out this year fourth season was castlevania 
<sighs> yes. I talk about just absurd. I'm almost there. Oh, man. I'm through three seasons. That's also You haven't finished list. the fourth season? I have not. Oh, dude. So the third season was a slog compared yeah. to the second. Yeah, so, the third pl- season is rough. Plus, <laughs> I had... Oh, gosh, this... This last month has the third been weird. season's depressing. The third yeah. season is rough. Just ugh. so I started it, and then The Witcher season two came out, oh, and yeah. The, yeah, so yeah, no, that makes finished sense. The Witcher season two, circled back to Castlevania. It's like, oh look, Peacemakers. I'm like, no, 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 no. I need to finish <laughs> Castlevania, and I'm trying to get both of those done before The Legend of Vox Machina comes out. Okay, so yeah, winter that, TV watching saw, has been weird. Just saw the, the the preview for Vox Vox Machina, and that looks like it's going to be hilarious and very much in the same vein as Castlevania is. Um, R-rated animation. R-rated animation, man. Uh, I was I was a fan, but the, the, that fourth season is is worth everything the third season puts you through. I think, I really think so. Because you finished it, right, Caleb? I watched it like the day it came out. Okay, the yeah. entirety of it, the whole thing. Yeah, my friend Logan yeah. and I sat down and we just binged the entire fourth season when it came out. I guess it's like only four hours long, really. Uh, yeah, five hours. It's something like that. It's not that long. Well, how many of us had Castlevania on our list? Because it was on Me. mine. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it wasn't on my list, but... Was it not on yours? Yeah. No, I, I definitely had it on well, mine. And it led to, for me, the discovery of the uh, YouTube channel and podcast stuff from Overly Sarcastic Productions, especially content from Red, one of the hosts for Overly Sarcastic, and her series Trope Talk is amazing. And then I think they also did a... I believe it's a detailed diatribe yep. on the... Uh, or no, it was for the, the one villainous scene series that a whole oh, bunch of YouTubers yeah. and yeah, creators yeah. were a part of and they talked about the final battle in Castlevania and when Alucard confronts Dracula. You must be Belmont. And just everything <laughs> about like like their breakdown on oh, it was so man. good and like when uh, our friend Jacob Ganser who's also been on the podcast and has been involved in a bunch of our RPG stuff re- well he got me he he was the one who said hey you need to watch Castlevania and watch the first couple episodes with me and then and part of that was because we were talking about Trope Talk and we were talking about other things. I discovered it first. And he was like, well, I want you to be able to watch their breakdown on this, but you need to get to the end of season two first to be yeah. able to do that. Because Red has this great line where she's talking about Alucard and just everything that's happened with the end of the second season. And she just goes, wow, he's really going to need to talk about that when therapy is invented in 400 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of dark stuff season, that they don't shy away three, from. He, uh, he just ends up talking to himself and his dishware and his dinner and uh and dolls little, and little dolls, dolls of his friends <laughs> and dolls of his Thank friends you very much. that's right <laughs> i saw a wonderful meme related to that was uh dms during the pandemic and it was just that scene of uh-huh. alucard talking to the dolls and the plates and his dinner and uh, i was like yep that's that's very true this is not on my list and it's a yearly thing but um, i gotta shout it out because you mentioned overly sarcastic productions she does her miscellaneous myths which she just covers like various folklore and myths from like Greek myths to Celtic or whatever. But she has an ongoing series. She only does one video a year in it, which makes me kind of sad. But mm. she covers the original story of Journey to the West every December and just does like a segment of it. I highly recommend it. It's so funny. With covering different creators from the internet, I would like to highlight CJ the X. They are a YouTube video essayist, and there's something about the way that they break down various stories from Tangled to Bo Burnham's Inside. They made a two-hour and 20-minute video essay in reflection of the hour-and-a-half special. Uh, And the one that I'm drawn to the most of all their work is this hour-and-a-half near dissertation on Cat Valentine from the Nickelodeon show Victorious. 
I have watched and rewatched the first 40 minutes of this video essay, and it has led me to a greater understanding of myself and the world. <laughs> I just enjoy so much of how they create their content and go about telling the stories. I think it also gave me the opportunity to better understand how, again, to articulate my connection between the things that I'm consuming and how I relate to them and what that's saying within me or within the work itself. That is now in my YouTube search history, so thank you. Mm -hmm. And it's also still I'm a in our huge script. video essay nerd. Oh, yeah. they are excellent. Well, and you got me into Pop Culture Detective. Yes. And, and just in the uh, trope that he talked about with Born Sexy yesterday was one that was on my mind when we were talking about, I think I can bring this up because I don't think this episode's going to see the light of day because it's a concept we've been kicking around since season one and it's the tweaks and just oh, the idea of yeah, like, what's, what's just one thing you could change? I'll mention one of mine that came up, including a moment somewhere in, and this was when I mentioned this to Melissa, she was like, are you feeling okay? Because you love everything about that show. Why would you want to change something about it? Firefly. <laughs> oh. and yeah, yeah, yeah. including a moment in there where River shows an aptitude of, a, of being a pilot before she just randomly out of nowhere can fly the ship in Serenity. And granted, there was a gap in production between the, the one season of Firefly that we have and the movie that came later, but it makes it so River Tam is less likely to fit into the born sexy yesterday trope that pop culture detective talks about, and I would strongly recommend that video as well. We give so much love <laughs> to YouTube video essays on, the podcast, on this podcast, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. If you guys ever have 12 hours where you're not doing anything, there is a 12-hour video essay on Morrowind. It's really good. <laughs> you watched all of it, didn't you? I didn't watch in one sitting. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Talking about needing 12 hours, the finalization of the Daniel Craig James Bond era came this past year, and uh, that was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. The total runtime is probably more than 12 hours. Yeah, it was a lot more than 12 hours. Because how many films movies? It's five, five. movies. Five movies. Each of them is at least two two hours. You can skip. So we're at Solace. ten. You can no. You really actually can't. So that's one of the things I don't like. Quantum of Solace. It was not arguably a good movie. I I'm a big Bond guy. I have been for a very long time. And Daniel Craig, I I thought has been an absolutely amazing James Bond. Set all that aside, he has one of the worst James Bond movies ever made in his run, and that is Quantum of Solace. But Spectre. And No Time to Die made Quantum of Solace extremely relevant to the overall story. And that drives me up a freaking wall. <laughs> I cannot tell you how much how mad I was yeah. about that. Because you and I are living in separate universes because I'm not currently current on Bond. Yep. And so I'm living in this space where, hey, you've got Casino Royale and Skyfall. They have nothing to do with each other. They're both amazing. And that can be your world of Bond. I need to catch up. Though. Yeah. Spectre made... Spectre set the stage... For No Time to Die. Spectre was great, I thought. Um, it wasn't as good as Skyfall. Skyfall is actually probably the best one. I think you can We can get into that some other day, but it really is arguably and critically the best one. Casino Royale was brilliant. It was a brand new Bond. It was a Bond we had not seen before. Quantum of again, terrible. <laughs> Spectre started pulling strings that had been left over from Casino Royale that Quantum of failed to wrap up. And Juan Vasalis was supposed to wrap those up, and it didn't because it was bad. But No Time to Die, I went, I got a chance to finally see it right at the end of 2021, um, the first weekend of December. Which is an apt title for that movie because that's the movie that wouldn't die because it was supposed to come out pre-pandemic. It was supposed to come out in 2019. And yeah. was delayed and for two years. getting delayed. And it finally hit theaters, and I think the wait was completely worth it. And I got to see it with a really dear friend of mine, 
And I remember sitting in the theater and the credits were rolling. We haven't said a word to each other yet. And I stood up and he stood up and we walked out of the theater in absolute silence. There were like five people in the theater because it was so late. It was the last weekend it was going to be in theaters. And we got out into the just blinding light of the theater hallway because it was so much darker in there. And we turned to each other. We were we had both been crying at some point. There are tear stains on each of our faces. Don't know when we cried, but we did. And the only thing we could say to each other was, wow. Just wow. So if you've not seen No Time to Die, watch all of the Daniel Craig run. It is an amazing finish to his time as James Bond. I was completely floored. It had The movie does have a few things about it that maybe we could discuss at some point where maybe this wasn't so great, but overall, it was just incredible. So that was, that was a very, very cool experience to finally see the end of our James Bond, because really, arguably, that's our generation's Bond for now. And oh, we'll yeah. see who comes along. There's talks. With Craig's playing Bond, you have a great example. Or, or heck, even with Judy Dench playing M, you have someone who, an actor who can spend a decade plus with a character and be able to develop them and change them over time and bring them up in multiple installments within an overarching series. And I remember watching an interview with Killian Murphy talking about that concept mm. for Peaky Blinders and being able to consistently go back to Tommy Shelby and get in his headspace. A much fuller conversation about Peaky Blinders is in our most recent episode, Bulwark Blinders, where we talked about that show as well as Boardwalk Empire. And I'm so glad it was the recommendation that you kept giving me and others would give me when it's like, oh, I really love Boardwalk Empire. And it's like, well, you need to see this story that's essentially set in the same era and covers a lot of the same things set on the other side of the pond. And yeah, Peaky Blinders is absolutely amazing. And just the way in which it makes a lot of different creative decisions. I keep, as a musician, I keep coming back to the anachronistic needle drops and the fact that you have <laughs> this just alternative hard rock yeah. music going in the background. It's like, oh, we're in a shipyard in Birmingham in England and the Arctic monkeys are blaring over <laughs> your top. But it's somehow perfect. Um, it's it just makes such a sense. wonderful conversation. There is another movie that we've not actually discussed on this podcast that does anachronistic mu- music perfectly. Mm-hmm. Heath Ledger. A Knight's Tale. Tale. I was just well, telling yes. John before we came down here, he needs to see that. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I do want to do an episode on A Knight's Tale at some point, because it is one of the best movies ever made. It's a great movie, but all of the music, um, I don't think, I think ACDC would have been burned at the stake in 1400 <laughs> when that movie was supposed <laughs> well, to be rare earth. I mean, oh my goodness. Oh, that too. <laughs> so I'll pull on that thread to talk about my next thing, because it's not anachronistic music, but it is music that you think wouldn't fit the story it's talking about i watched the young pope and the new pope on hbo this year and the the opening theme song is all on the watchtower by Jimi hendrix but the basic premise is in the first season the young pope jude law is elected a sexy young pope (laughs) it's jude law it's it's an italian show so they really emphasize the sexy point but he's like (laughs) super conservative he basically wants to take the church back to like crusade medieval times and then in the new pope they bring in john malkovich to play a very strange different iteration of a pope 
I've never responded so viscerally to a show. <laughs> it's visually um, stunning. Every shot is amazing. And there are parts about this show that I love, and there are parts that I absolutely despise. But sometimes I love. Sometimes I like watching media that you don't particularly enjoy, or that you have a visceral response to. I'd love for you to watch it, because we could have a lot of conversations about it, especially someone coming who's actually a member of the church. That's fair. Because I'm an outsider looking in. So when it comes to that conflict of having something that you like and you don't like, or exploring media to see your reaction, I watched Mythic Quest this year, And that's a show with characters that I cannot decide if they're likable or unlikable. It's sort of an office comedy with people working at a video game development company. Stars Rob McElhenney and several other lovely cast members and comes from a lot of the same writing team as It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And what I enjoy so much about it is how fascinated I am that I'll watch an episode and have big feelings afterwards. But if you asked me if I liked or enjoyed any of the characters or thought this or that about them, I just don't understand the connection between the people I'm seeing on screen and still what is happening with me within the story. And it fascinates me. I enjoy Mythic Quest, and I'm interested to see where that goes. We had a spotlight with Ella Abbott on our... It was our Halloween episode. She was the spotlight. Yes. Yeah. And she talked about Mythic Quest. And I know she gave it a shout out. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. She liked it for a great number of reasons. In fact, kind of almost framed it as like the underdog because a lot of people, when they're talking about Apple TV and shows they're obsessed with, talk about Ted Lasso. I do enjoy Ted Lasso as well. we'll get there. (laughs) But she said at that point, Mythic Quest is kind of the underdog or one that it's like, hey, as long as you have Apple TV, you should totally watch Mythic Quest. And she pointed out that one of the things that it did extremely well was it had one of the best quarantine episodes out of Mm. every piece of media that was doing that as soon as we were getting into pandemic shutdowns everybody's dealing with communicating virtually there's very real conversations about self-care there's moments where it's just like hey you might just need a hug let's check on this person let's be there for our people and just that she highlighted that that was something that the show did very well i agree i think that the show has very real emotions and i think it's why the characters are so complex and likable and unlikable at the same time is there's such whole and interesting people. And I think that that comes through in the way the show is written for what situations they encounter and how they respond to them. And it kind of falls into a similar vein at that point, like kind of as maybe like mash and scrubs where it's like, this is going to be hilarious. This humor is maybe going to be a little bit dark. You would still put it in that. Well, it's, it's, it's the dramedy category. It's still going to make you laugh and it still is maybe technically a comedy, but there's also going to be moments that, make you very emotional yeah that's what succession fits into mm. we we tend to like those here on uh storytelling breakdown i've got a show that's absolutely not that i got a chance to watch a, a netflix series that only has six episodes it came out of the german studios in of netflix called barbaren or in english barbarians what if and when you watch this do not watch it in the english dub Watch it in the original language and read the subtitles. It is a story, a dramatization of what actually happened in 9 AD when the Roman legions that were fighting in Germany area were trying to retreat to their winter camps. And they were betrayed by one of their own officers who was born a barbarian. Uh, one of the Germanic, a member of one of the Germanic tribes, Arminius. Arminius <laughs> was raised in Rome, 
and then turned on the Roman legions, and it led to what is called the Battle of Totenberg Forest in 9 AD, one of the single greatest Roman military defeats of all time. Three whole legions eviscerated. And this in six episodes, you get to see the story of Arminius, Gaius Arminius, turning against Gaius Verus, his foster father, finding his tribe, and becoming the high king of all the Germanic tribes, and then leading them against the Romans. It is dark, grimy, gritty, bloody, visceral in every way. But the coolest part of it was that, yeah, it's actually quite historically accurate. And it's all of the speaking is done in either Latin or High German. And not even High German, like older High German. It's a very strange dialect of German. Very, very cool. And uh, being a history nerd like myself, there's almost nothing funny about that series at all. But the characters are really, really interesting. I loved Arminius. He has a lot of conflict because he does care for the Romans, but he sees that he cares for his people more, and there's a, there's a conflict of loyalty in him that is just very cool to watch. Uh, I thought the acting was actually really good. It is renewed for a second season, so I don't know what they're going to do with it, because Rome came back with a vengeance, historically speaking, and was bad. But that one great victory that first season, uh, you could probably just tie that season in a ribbon and not have to watch the next one. It was great. It was lots of fun. So I'll pull on that thread. I've done... I've spent a lot of this year watching Korean media. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've also all been on Netflix. Netflix is actually a pretty good market to get foreign media if you're interested in it. But I watched Squid Game. Obviously, that's super popular right now, or was like a month ago. Vincenzo, King, and Bad Guys. And I think my favorite thing about all of these is it's such a cool window into a different culture because, you know, if you just watch a show on CBS or whatever, they'll do things that we do here in America. They'll go to a fast food restaurant or a coffee shop or whatever, and they do the same stuff in these Korean shows, but obviously it's a total different culture, so you get that different exposure. You know, they'll go get traditional types of Korean food, or, you know, they'll go do activities and stuff that are popular there, but aren't really so here. It's fun. It's like a nice little window. Squid Game is... Very intense. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Bad Guys is like a crime thriller. It's a cop who recruits three criminals to help him hunt other criminals. Vincenzo is about a mobster who comes, who was in Italy, was part of the Italian mob, comes back to Korea, and it's more of a comedy. He fights like this big (laughs) corporation trying to buy out this building. And then King is like a weird... King's kind of hard to describe. The main character is from a parallel reality where he is the king of a unified Korea and then finds a portal that comes to our world. Oh. Um, Oh, goodness. Yes. And crosses over between he meets a cop in our world. They fall in love. But his uncle is, like, trying to steal the throne from him. His universe fails. So he goes and hides in our universe and is really scary. He, like, kills his alternate self and takes his place to, like, hide. It's pretty intense. I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it is really good. Everything about that sounds wonderful. It also kind of reminds me of Fringe with the parallel universes, which we've not talked about on this show yet, and Fringe is... I watch Fringe at least once a year, but we'll talk about that some other time. But yeah, I would encourage everybody to watch foreign media, Mm -hmm. just because it's different types of storytelling. You know, Western media has a very, you know, traditional, the hero's journey type of story. But Eastern storytelling especially is it's very different. It's it's fun. I added one to my list 
and I'll use Larissa's shelf analogy because this was not something that I originally had on my list and then remembered after what you were just talking about and it's like oh German show watching it in the dub maybe wasn't the best idea I need to circle back to this Babylon Berlin also from Netflix oh, yeah. and also set in the 20s and it's in Germany in this era that is eventually going to lead into the Second World War and just watching I, I it's been a while but I remember one moment that stuck out because the male lead is a cop and he encounters probably the female lead oh, this has been a while so I'm going to butcher this but basically he and the female lead of the show both come off of elevators collide with one another they drop all of their stuff and they've both been working in different departments and as a result of that when the guy's portfolio falls open there's all of these pornographic images and then when her portfolio drops it's just crime scene shots of horribly mutilated dead bodies and she's helping him pick up his pile he's helping her and as they're handing pictures to one another she just goes i hope you're with the vice squad and he looks at hers i hope you're with homicide because <laughs> out of those contexts this isn't good I, and i need to go back because that was very interesting and i think yeah i would enjoy it more with subtitles and not doing the dub i made it through one episode of barbara and it with english and one of the things that drove me up up a wall the most about it was the voiceover was not particularly well done and so then going back and, and switching the language back over to what it was originally filmed in was just a much better experience it really was this wasn't on my list well yes if you're going to watch foreign media watch it and it's in the language it was filmed in but if you're looking for a really good Bollywood film it's amazing Bahubali parts one and two oh, no, is absolutely fantastic oh yeah oh. yeah it's so over the top. It's like traditional epic fantasy story. Heir to the throne gets sent away as a baby, comes back, defeats the evil bad guys and whatnot. But there's a part where men link their arms and then get catapulted over the walls. Uh, that, that's this movie. Yes. <laughs> I've seen that clip. And I always thought, what in the world is this? That's why we watched it. And it's so worth it. I have a tie-in I can make here and then I'm going to set up Larissa. Hmm. Uh, the... And I also say this for uh, John's benefit because he's in the other room listening right now. But I recall when we took Dr. Kandau's film scoring and orchestration class, we could not end the semester without, without watching at least one Bollywood credit sequence and dance <laughs> number. Yeah. And it was amazing. Yeah. Now, seeing as the last item we hit on your list, Larissa, was Mythic Quest. And we have in the past talked about, we did an entire episode on Blues Brothers. That was our season lead off for season two when we're talking about things that started out as a comedy sketch and then became something absolutely amazing in either film or series and then you have things like Blues Brothers that come to mind or Wayne's World uh, Brockmire or Ted Lasso I enjoy Ted Lasso so much and to be honest Ben I'm impressed that you made that connection because that's another thing that must have gotten knocked off my shelf I forgot that that was how Ted Lasso started <laughs> even though at one point I did know that um, my favorite thing about Ted Lasso is the characters in it and how they're allowed to grow and change throughout the series. And my favorite character is Keeley Jones. She's so fun. That show gives her character such dignity because she's allowed to be feminine in this traditional way where she has fuzzy pillows and fluffy things on her pens and her makeup is always done. But she's also taken seriously by the characters in the show and allowed to grow and change the same way. 
and I think she is excellent, and the romances in it are fun, too. I don't have anything educated or interesting to say about Ted Lasso. I just enjoy it a lot. The only thing I know about Ted Lasso is I, I've seen the clip where he's talking to one of his players, and he gives the practice speech, <laughs> which, if you guys don't know, is, I'm assuming from the context of the scene, it's somewhat serious. Like, he's trying to convince this player that he has to do his job. Is it the one where he keeps saying practice over yes. and over again? That is word for word taken from a real life thing that happened. Allen Iverson, uh, the NBA player, gave an yep. infamous interview once where he was complaining about he didn't go to practice because it's just practice. What do I have to do that? And Ted Lasso turns it on his head <laughs> and uses it as a coach giving an inspiring speech to his player. <laughs> like, that's why you have to go practice. I haven't seen the show, but that really made me want to watch it. Oh. Uh, but I don't have Apple TV. The only other observation I'll make on Ted Lasso is just the big one of the biggest because I I also still need to watch it it also like I can appreciate the fact that it's using uh, Hannah Waddingham so well oh she of, is delightful she's who, my second favorite character and for most of us as, the, as Rebecca Weldon and for most of us we would know her ringing the bell and saying shame in Game of Thrones oh, would have okay. been our first exposure uh, the, yeah, so I want to see her in a series where she gets so much more to do and isn't basically waterboard because that happened in Game of Thrones anyway where do we want to... Stephen, we'd be back to your Well, list. I'm interested. Yeah. What is Mike Birbiglia's Working It Out? Because... It's another podcast. Okay. He has a podcast where he invites on other comedians and storytellers to just sort of chit-chat, and they talk through what they're working on currently, and they ask the same set of icebreakers each time. And I've learned a lot from listening to Mike Birbiglia's Working It Out just about storytelling, and especially how stand-up comedy is constructed. And it's not even often talked about directly. A lot of time it's just different comedians coming on and sharing what they're working with or when they share feedback to him, just noticing the patterns of how they break down what worked and didn't work within the story or what they were drawn to or weren't drawn to within a story. And he's had on people like Bill Hader and John Mulaney, and he's also had on other comedians that I maybe hadn't heard of before, but then felt invited to explore their work. And I wish I could remember, I want to look up this person's name. The person whose name I was trying to remember is Sterling Harjo, and I may be mispronouncing his name, so I apologize if that's the case. He may have been very prominent. This was my first encounter with him. He made a show that came out in 2021 called Reservation Dogs, which is about this collection of four indigenous teenagers in rural Oklahoma, and it just goes through their experience in light of a tragedy in their lives. And he, I learned about the fact that that show existed from hearing about Sterling Harjo on Mike Birbiglia's podcast. And another connection point between that podcast and other items on my list was In and of Itself, another stage show by Derek Delgadio. It's really hard to describe. It's a little bit illusion, a little bit comedy, a little bit storytelling. And it was produced by Frank Oz. It may have also been directed by him, who was on Mike Birbiglia's podcast. So I'm now looking at each of our lists. I mean, at this point, it's basically superheroes and RPGs. Yes. Superheroes and RPGs, man. And The Witcher. And The Witcher. And we The didn't Beatles. actually talk about The Witcher. It's good. Go watch it. It's I mean, good. Go watch it. There that's you all you have we to really say. <laughs> and I will say especially... I finally played the third game. Yeah. Well, just where I was at, because I, I have not played any of the games. And I enjoyed the first season, but I was like, ah, oh, there, there's room to improve. I, we'll see what the second season does. I love the second season. I, I know you thought the finale was a little weak. I did but think I, the I finale was weak. the second season all the way through, but I have loved it thus far. Yeah. I started with the novels by Andrzej Sapkowski, which if you've never read those, go read those. The syntax is a little weird because they were originally written in Polish and then they were translated into like 37 different languages. But then I was introduced. So I was introduced to novels first. I read like four or five of them. I think there's six or seven. Anyways, 
I haven't finished them. That's okay. Then I saw the first season, and I thought, okay, cool. And then I played The Witcher 3, and I've not played Witcher 1 or 2. I don't really see the need to go back and play them, but The Witcher 3 is brilliant. You don't have to play 1. 2 is a very good game. Okay. I might might have to get my hands on that. But 3 was brilliant. Love it. I'm currently in the middle of another playthrough at right now. And then that second season. There. I think we've talked about Witcher now. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And The Witcher is a wonderful segue into something that has been a part of all of our 2021 media experiences, and that is RPGs and D&D. And this might be the best kind of setup for this, and then we can build from there. Larissa, you're currently playing in your first campaign. I am. That I am DMing. Yes. And so you're currently playing an ASMR barbarian who's also based on a Craig Ferguson animation likeness and is so fun to voice at the table. You do a great job. Thank you. And then... Caleb, you were in the campaign that was my first experience that we talked about a year ago for the last community update when we were Moonleaf and Heidelstone. Mm-hmm. Tell Larissa and I about your first characters because you guys have more experience or at least further back experience with D&D than we do. Well, my first character was boring because my first character didn't play for very long. That was only a couple sessions. But what was his name even? I don't even remember that character's name. Was he immediately b- before Moonleaf? He was, was immediately before one? Moonleaf. Oh, okay. So um, he, he, the whole personality of that character was he was an elf with a beard. That was it. Um, <laughs> not very deep. Uh, but yeah, then yeah. I went and played Moonleaf, who was a six-inch tall pixie. Absolutely hilarious to play. Prankster. Messed with everybody. My current character in the campaign that I'm playing is a halfling. So he's 147 years old. Halflings live to be about 150. So equivalent, <laughs> he's like an 88-year-old man. <laughs> And I basically play him like a boomer, and it is so much fun at the table to mess with everybody else and oh, just be grouchy no. and crotchety the whole time. I, if you haven't played an old guy, play an old guy. Play an old that's guy. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's what Travis Willingham is doing in Critical Role right now, and it's amazing. It's like, oh, you thought my old man character was interesting. I'm a smaller, older man underneath. Steven, your first character. Uh, my first, very first character was uh, Thorn, and Thorn was an was an Elvish Ranger, fourth edition of D anD. d and he was a lot of fun because he was chaotic, stupid. <laughs> um, I just, I was, I was like my first time ever really playing, so I was, I was, time, I was learning the game with this character, which was really cool. And he just made really bad decisions because I thought my dice would would lead me to victory, and they ultimately led me to death. But that's okay, because that's the game. He's a lot of fun. He ended up half vampire at one point. <laughs> um, I remember distinctly trying to use one of my vampire attacks against a warforged, which is essentially a magic robot my dm penalized me instead of giving me health back which i really needed and he said you drank oil and i went oh yeah now that makes sense (laughs) um i remember that very very distinctly and thorn just had this certain proclivity as a character for getting himself into incredible amounts of trouble very 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 quickly and then i moved on to bigger and better more chaotic stupid characters barbarians barbarian i played a barbarian for a while i think he only did like five sessions as a barbarian paladins i have played paladins mostly if I've been doing D&D, I think 5th edition in particular, the Paladin is one of the most overpowered classes. And he they're always just like kind of the easiest for me to play. I started running a campaign for my family. And both my father and uncle are playing half-elf Paladins. And I cannot kill either of them. <laughs> I will play a Paladin. And then a lot of the times when I play in a party, it's always been Fraternity Brothers up until the past couple of years. But when I would play a Paladin, everybody knew they could be a lot more risky because I was practically there just to not die. And that's always been a lot of fun. Now I'm really excited because I'm going to jump in on a campaign with you, Woo-hoo! Larissa. We're as playing a, later tonight. We're playing literally later today as a bard. 
Uh, this will be the first time that the trained musician at the table, this is the first time he is playing a bard, <gasps> and he is very excited about it. Uh-oh, um, and I, I stole some of the idea for the bard from one of the first guys that I ever played D&D with. This is going to be way too much fun. So we're doing that, bringing a bard to the table. We'll hear more about him at some point. Yes, we will. Um, well, and because this is where the D&D conversation, like this installment of it gets interesting. Because the last time we talked, we were so into everything we had done with the fake core system. Yeah. And since then, you and I have both learned how to DM 5th all, all of us, or all three of us know how to DM 5th edition. And then the rest of you have been learning it from the player side. Yes. And... It has been an extraordinary amount of fun compared to, because I know my start was fourth edition, and there's all sorts of crossfire between fans of different editions of the game. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but it has been, for the most part, approachable, and it's been a lot of fun to build and to homebrew and do different things. But then also, like, it's been fun to lean into because I would say both of the characters I've played have definitely been trope heavy. Because the first character I ever played was Heidelstone, a mage. He's clearly based on Tom Hiddleston and is extremely pretentious, as mages can often be. And now I'm playing Jagger, a rogue, in your Strahd campaign. Yeah, you're the like the roguiest rogue. He's the man you're, in you're black. Yeah. You are the edgelord of the campaign, which is hilarious, <laughs> because the whole campaign is designed to be edgelord. And you are. You know, it's, well, you know, it's okay. When I kill you, you can bring a fun character at the table. <laughs> Jagger's fun. For you. No, that campaign's been a lot of fun. Curse of Strahd's been a cool, cool experience, because... You know, it's one of the pre-built modules, and it's arguably one of the harder ones. And, and it's a classic. That's like the, classic. that's the it's, most well-known one. It's the, va- the vampire D and D story. Can you do your Strahd voice for us? Strahd von Surovich is refined, I think, and he yeah. definitely likes to take time with what he speaks, and he doesn't always use the word that syntactic syntactically English would use. Because most people in English would say, you know, he, he spoke well and he says, I, I speak in a way that is refined. Strat has been a lot of fun to play as a villain. I love I love having it. My DMPC is effectively the big, the big bad. And it's, mm, mm. So particularly with the pandemic happening, I want to shout out two different systems that I've very much enjoyed this past year. And Discord as a fantastic Discord. way to play... Mm-hmm. Any tabletop RPG, if you're nice together. But I played a lot of Mutants and Masterminds this year, which is a system that is all based around superheroes. Cool. So our friend Lucas, who we've had on the podcast, runs that game. But he has like 20 different Discord channels going for a bunch of people playing their own separate heroes. And you just go on your like solo your issue, issue run, yep. basically. <laughs> but that's all been right. fantastic. And then occasionally there'll be team-ups. Yes, and then occasionally people get together and, you know, we have a big Avengers-style team-up. Um, and the other one is Monster of the Week, which I ran with another friend on the podcast, Autumn. And that is a Powered by the Apocalypse system. So it's 2D6s that you roll. This system is specifically themed around, like, any teen supernatural drama you've ever seen. So Supernatural, Buffy... Anything like that. You get to pick what kind of character you are. You can be like a werewolf. You can be like a spellcaster. My favorite class is you can be a mundane, which means you're just a regular person. Oh, (laughs) no. But yeah, it's it's all about investigating the mysteries and, okay, what kind of monster is it this week? And then figuring out its weakness and then fighting it. But that's been a ton of fun, too. See, that indirectly led into the campaign that we're currently in because I started doing a virtual Monsters of the Week with Larissa and with uh, our friend... Megan Bracker, who we will hear later in this very episode during the spotlight. And then as I started to get into 5th edition, it's like, okay, well, we've been talking about this game system, and now I'm getting into another game system. So rather than abandon you guys, 
let's bring you along here. And now you're playing the Barbarian and the Artificer in the homebrew campaign, which right now for me, the most terrifying part of that, because you're pulling from Strahd, which is an official yeah, D&D module. Like, there's, everything's yeah. there for you. Yep. And I've been doing a lot of homebrew. Power to homebrew. And I have been pulling from modules from, from independent creators, but currently you guys are on a continent that is in a book that has a book that's go- or that, that's going to come out at some point, and I don't have it yet. Oh. So I have been filling in a lot of the blanks on my own. Ah, you've been doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you. It has been terrifying. <laughs> but the cities that you've run, unto, run into that I have been able to prop up and... Like hold yeah. up with toothpicks. I yeah. think that's how I described it in one, yeah. of, my, uh, one of my blog posts. <laughs> and and be the yep. guy in Avatar who's just the same dude with different hats experience of a DM. Uh-huh. It, it works so Shoot. well though, and it has been Doc. so much fun. Oh my goodness! I just watched that episode with Samwise and started me on. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we can as we kind of wrap this up. Like the the only other items I had are are kind of obvious. I mean, yeah, Marvel Phase Four, both in television and in film, has been an extraordinary amount of fun. If you have Disney Plus. The Get Back documentary from Peter Jackson on the Beatles was an insane watch. I've heard so many good things. It, it just, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, just the the way in which it does, it does what it sets out to do. It provides a wonderful vision into the world that just shows you, hey, this is what happened, and this is the Beatles doing their creative process, and like you're hearing lyrics that aren't there yet, and it's it is wild. The last thing I'm going to mention before we wrap this up or whatever is. A documentary, a sports documentary. Oh, yes. That is, you don't have to be a sports fan to appreciate it because they don't talk about sports. Like, it's not about sports. But on YouTube, Secret Base did a seven-part documentary on the Atlanta Falcons and their whole history. And it is amazing because they focus on the people, not necessarily the game and, like, I mean, they break down some games in the scores, but mostly it's about okay. This is the coach that was there at the time, and he was—he had a very interesting personality, and so many of them yes. did. It's insane. This player who like impacted just the culture of the team and things like that. It's very fun, and the fact that Atlanta is also one of those teams that's just kind of cursed. So every time something goes wrong, the story plays out in spectacular fashion. It, it, like I, I quote Michael Caine in Noises Off. I'm just not the type of person that gets a thrill out of watching an automobile crash. Especially when it's my automobile. I'm not a Falcons fan, so I found it immensely entertaining. Twig. 
Haiku song. Thank you. And the twigs and the branches and the branches and the trees and the trees and the bark and the bark down in the valley.
you just heard is the Ratlin Bog live from the Tiger Room by the Ragtag Bunch, which is my group. Uh, you've probably heard it now a hundred times, but we are gearing up for our 2022 season. We will be going back to the Tiger Room in May, so look forward to giving all of you updates about that. And we're going to be hopefully releasing another album this year. That'll be an actual studioed album, so keep your ears open for that. With that, I'll turn things over to Larissa to introduce our spotlight guest. Welcome, everyone, to this Storytelling Breakdown Spotlight. I'm here with Megan Bracker. Megan and I go way back. We were roommates in college and then roommates after college, and now we're reconnecting over Megan's recent experience with the game Night in the Woods. Welcome, Megan. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining. I'm excited to touch base again on another piece of media you enjoyed. I know so much of our friendship has been built on being able to talk through different things we enjoy and TV. And to be honest, admittedly, I know I'm much less experienced with video games. So I'm really excited to hear your perspective on Night in the Woods. To get started, can you tell me just a little bit about what it is and how you found it? Of course. Um, Night in the Woods is a single person game in 2D animation where all the characters are set in like a modern world, just like our own, only they're all animals. And you play as the main character, Mae Borowski, as she comes to back to her hometown where there is a mystery afoot. And during the time where she's trying to discover this mystery, she's also reconnecting with her childhood friends and her family and trying to find her place back in her hometown to try and also figure out who's involved in what and what that has to do with some of the magical mystery that's been going on in the background. So there's a lot of really sweet moments of her reconnecting with people while also going on this grand adventure. That's so wonderful. And it's eerie how much that echoes, I'm guessing, much of your experience in the last few months. For context, Megan moved back home to Ohio, and I moved into a separate, like, living on my own experience in Fort Wayne. And so I'm sure going back home to your hometown felt reminiscent of what you were experiencing in that game. Or can you tell me if that's right, if I'm understanding correctly what that experience would be like for you? Yeah, absolutely. It was very eerily similar because I grew up in this small town similar to the one in the game that's just kind of like a suburb town. And so coming back after living in Fort Wayne, which is more of a city area, felt very much like what was expressed in the game, where it's a lot of people that I knew growing up and 
a lot of the same places. But of course, when you come back after a few years, it all looks very different. And everybody's in different places in life, very much like in the game as well. So when I first came across the game, it was through watching a Let's Play of it on YouTube. And it was just kind of left me stunned at first because of just how similar it was, some of the conversations that were going on with the game, because of course, in the game, May comes across her old friends who are now doing different jobs, things are going differently with their family, some are in new relationships, and the same sort of thing was going on in my own life, which really kind of shifted my perspective on even some of my own memories of home, because things were so different, and I'm looking at it from the perspective of someone a couple years older, just like May was in the game. It's kind of like a loss of footing at first, and then learning how to refine your footing again. Was there anything about that experience of embarking on the journey within the game that made the journey within your actual personal life more manageable? Or how would you describe what it would be to relate? Because I don't know. I've had experiences where I connect with media and where it's meant something to me, but it's almost uncanny how one-to-one similar, especially with the character being named May, that that experience of enjoying the game was to what was happening to you in your life. For context, my nickname at home is May. Going through, it was very one-to-one in the fact that a lot of times, like, she would have a conversation with a friend at their work and she'd be reconnecting and then realize, oh, wait, I have no idea what they've been doing for the past two years while I've been away at college. Oh, dear. (laughs) Because, of course, even with social media, a lot of times we don't always keep track of everybody that we've known before. And so trying to catch up with everything. And so she would do the same throughout the game. And a lot of the game is honestly like in between the mystery is just going down the street and talking to random people on the street and you kind of learn her backstory with them, but also their backstory that she doesn't know either. And it's very much also seeing those same people from the new perspective of being older because of course when you're younger as a kid you look up to the adults around you and you see them as these people that don't have problems or these people that um, are so much more mature and have it all together and then when you get older and you start encountering the same kind of problems that other adults have then you start to realize that there's more to their life that you never understood. And that's something that she does as well as she investigates the mystery around town is learning more and more about people and what their lives are like beyond the perspective of her childhood. That sounds wonderful. I love how much insight you're providing, even in the summary of the game itself. It seems like this opportunity of this broadening and deepening at the same time of getting to know the people you already know and the lives you've already experienced in this deeper and more meaningful way as the place has changed and as you yourself have changed. In reflecting on all that, are there any particular moments from the game or any particular characters that stood out in your memory, either as connecting to something from your life or just being something you especially enjoyed about the game? There was one conversation in the game that, to me especially, pops out as a favorite. May tags along with her friend while she's doing a house call because her friend works at a hardware store. And so sometimes she'll go around to various houses around the town to fix people's houses. And so May goes with her and they're going down to just like fix an old furnace or something. But after they have fixed the furnace and they go out... They sit down on the front porch of this lady's house out in the country, 
and just have a conversation where her friend B tells her about like, you know, how she's so tired because she's taken over the family business um, and how things have changed a lot in the past few years because all of her own plans about going to college one day have changed since she took over the business, how her family has shifted in her dynamic with her parents as she has taken over that responsibility um, because she is taking care of her dad now at that point as well. And so she's feeling very weighed down, whereas May is still kind of shifting from that childhood mentality into that of an adult. And she doesn't really have a job or responsibilities as of yet. Um, so she is coming to this perspective of, oh, life is full of magic and life is full of opportunity. You just need to seek it out. Those two have a very interesting conversation where May actually goes out into the field and collects fireflies for Bee because she says, here, you need a little bit of magic and brings the fireflies back to her. And B offers her a bit of advice in turn, giving her advice on what she can do with her future and say, hey, I know that you like to run into things. I know that you like to be enthusiastic about things. Let's see if maybe we can find a career path or a future that you can use that instead of trying to tamp it down like everybody's been trying to make you do. And so it's really beautiful to see those two kind of contribute to each other in this very meaningful way, using their two very different perspectives to help each other. So one provides the lightness and the energy to the other, while the other provides some insight and responsibility into the one that has that more boundless energy. And so it's a really beautiful exchange to see in that moment. That is so wonderful. I almost feel the need to just sit with that for a second and consider the weight of what all that would feel like within the context of the game. And as I consider the friendships in my life where I've seen that dynamic at play of one person being all playful and spunky and the other person being more grounded, it's almost the perfect setup for a sitcom. (laughs) As you see these characters have these meaningful relationships formed within the game, how does that color, and Megan, you don't have to answer this question if you're not comfortable with it, As you see these characters have these meaningful relationships in the game, how does that color the lens with which you look at some of the relationships in your life that you return to and navigate back at home? I think the biggest thing for me has been comparing it a lot to, say, my relationship with my sister. Because me and my sister have always been very, very close. And for a lot of our lives, we've traveled along the same paths because of our closeness. And in the past two years, our life paths have diverged quite a bit in where we plan to be in life. So for her, she's very much a wandering spirit. She likes to travel. She wants to see the world. She wants to live different places. And so this past year... She just recently moved to Ireland, which was, of course, farther than either of us have ever been from each other. For me, I'm finding more and more that my plans are more to stay here, which I always thought that I would follow her anywhere. And so kind of looking at our relationship through this new lens of what our plans are and learning to be okay with that difference of what we had hoped for and planned for in our childhood to what we now hope for and plan for now, it is a shift, but it also helps us to have that kind of wonderful exchange as well. Because through her, I get to hear about all these wonderful adventures that she has where every day is new 
all the places she wants to see. And she gets to um, talk with me and I get to share, you know, here's how things are back at home. So it's been a wonderful relationship still, even though that perspective has shifted quite a bit. Megan, that is so beautiful. I love that observation. I need to start over and move the microphone. (laughs) Megan, that is so beautiful. I love that observation. And I think that that demonstrates such insight, not just into your experience with the game, but into the relationships you have with the people in your life. And I think it's so lovely to see that element of your experience reflected back in the context of Night in the Woods. And so, Megan, everything you had to share there was so lovely that I don't know if I can expand or add to it. So I'm going to ask you a new question. In the context of this game, is there anything about... Because I saw the trailer for it of how playful and how character-driven and unique it was. Are there any particular characters or moments that have that feeling of play and spontaneity that you'd like to share with listeners? Oh, absolutely. So one of May's other childhood friends is an absolute goofball of fun. His narrative is that he is May's like best friend from um, like since they were in school. Um, they used to pull pranks together all the time. They would always go throughout town during the game pulling what they call little crimes. It would be things like running through the woods and sword fighting or like target practice with his old crossbow after they built this strange contraption. Okay, Megan, I need to interrupt you here because I'm not familiar with the game. When you say things like sword fighting, are we talking legitimate dangerous sword fighting or are we playing imaginary sword fighting? It's like um, they had these little knives, but just like poking at each other. They're like pirates or something. Yeah, so it's a lot of revisiting their childhood for them. And they're constantly just going all over the place. And he's just a ball of energy. Like he'll randomly throw his arms in the air and yell at random moments in the game. And it's just so endearingly adorable to see those two interact and show that like, even in the context of the game's theme of growing up, like there's still that element of childhood joy that reflects like the bright colors in the game and the character design of them being animals. Because ironically, it's a friendship between a dog and a cat. Well, thank you so much for sharing all the insight and humanity within yourself and within that story. Is there anything you would like to leave listeners with as a takeaway from this game before we close our conversation? The thing that a lot of people don't often get to see with video games is the humanity behind them. Because in a lot of games, the underlying story is so connected and rooted to real life and our own lives which can sometimes be overshadowed a bit by the gameplay itself. Like calling into that inspiration that a lot of these game makers have created can have these beautiful stories. And I just love this opportunity that you guys have given me to share some of that beauty in the story. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I feel like my perspective has been broadened on video games and on the world just from this conversation alone. Megan, thank you for providing your insight, and I look forward to chatting more in the future. Thank you. I look forward to talking more with you, too. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content. 
But it's so cool when you come to us, too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. You can support our team on Patreon. There are new projects in the works for 2022 and beyond. Our team is going to be creating content that will be Patreon exclusive. And the only other thing I'll say about that is that these projects are not necessarily limited to the podcast medium. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>